On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Couple of stories across the front pages of the papers today. Should say uh, that one of the photographs on the front page of today's papers is of Olympic gold medalist Kelly Harrington and her new wife Mandy Loughlin. Congratulations to them. They tied the knot yesterday after 14 years together. Uh, I'm going to start with the Sunday Business Post because there is a story on the front page which you might not get a chance to discuss uh, in the course of the next hour as we're going through today's papers. But it's a story which I think is worth mentioning anyway. Uh, people may remember about a month ago the Irish Sun reported that the company behind uh, the development of the O'Devany Garden site uh, near the Phoenix. Park in Dublin was warning the government that if they didn't buy uh, the 50% of houses that were going to be basically put up to the private market that they were going to sell them to some sort of institutional uh, cuckoo or vulture fund one way or another it now turns out that a ban which prevented the sale of those 524 homes being developed on public lands to institutional funds has now been lifted by Onboard Planola. Uh, so last September, when Onboard Planola granted permission for Devony Gardens, it granted permission for 1,047 homes, but it banned the sale of half of those units to a corporate entity. Uh, 20% were supposed to be bought by Dublin City Council for social housing. 30% were supposed to be sold as affordable. The other 50% were supposed to go to the private market. They were supposed to go to individual purchasers or to maybe to the state for social housing. But there was a ban put in place at the time by Onboard Planola saying you can't sell them to a single mass investor Uh, but Bartra went to the High Court and claimed that the viability of the project would be affected by the ban the court case is still live but a modified decision has now been published by Ambor Planola, which has clarified that the 524 apartments being developed on the Odevany Garden site can now be sold to an institutional investor. This after Bartra said that the project might not have been commercially viable were they not able to do so. Uh, we may not get a chance to discuss it in the next hour, but I just did want to, to single it out. Uh, the main story today in the Business Post is that members of the construction industry and property sectors will warn the government tomorrow of limited capacity to address the shortage of accommodation for Ukrainian refugees and are also expected to push back against any plans for prefab villages, their words, over fears of reputational damage at a crisis summit organised by Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing. Uh, Amid the scramble to source immediate accommodation for refugees, O'Brien has called on senior figures in the property and construction industries to attend an emergency summit in Dublin tomorrow. And he has asked for help to identify empty buildings that can be refurbished in a short time frame and to assist local authorities to identify inactivated planning permissions and potential sites uh, for additional development. Uh, Both the paper tells us there is some reluctance against this idea of prefab villages because if they are only designed to house people for a short number of years, then effectively the the reputational damage of providing something uh, substandard, the the builders reckon, uh, will cause them more damage in the long run. So they aren't necessarily... Uh, all that enthusiastic about the whole process. Um, the front page of the Sun Independent, all the other papers basically from, from here on are, are effectively the Tony Houlihan show and we will of course discuss that. Um, Michal Martin does by the way tell the Sunday Independent that the government will look at offering financial support to householders in return for accommodating refugees from Ukraine. He said that nothing is being ruled out when it comes to financial assistance for households now faced with increased living costs. Uh, the Irish Refugee Council last week earned the government to give holiday home owners 300 to €400 Euro per month for their properties to be used by refugees amid fears that the beds booked up by the state and hotels uh, may soon fill up. We will talk about that proposal uh, with the Minister responsible for integration, Roderick O'Gorman. He is with us after 12 o'clock and we'll talk about that with him then. The main story today 
in the Sunday Independent is that Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan, as no doubt you will have heard, uh, will quit the public service entirely this summer after the Taoiseach paused the medic's planned move to an academic post in Trinity College. Micheál Martin's decision to pause the appointment last Friday, along with the negative reaction from other cabinet ministers to details of how the role would be funded, left the CMO upset and disappointed by the lack of support for his position, the Sunday Independent understands. A well-placed source told the paper last night, Tony feels ultimately that the political system did not support him. And the focus is now likely to turn to the role of Stephen Donnelly and his Secretary-General Robert Watt in the botched appointment. Uh, Prior to Dr Houlihan's announcement, Public Expenditure Minister Michael McGrath had instructed his officials to pause the recruitment process for a new CMO on foot of the controversy. It can be revealed this weekend. And there is, by the way, growing speculation over the role of Deputy Chief Medical Officer Ronan Glynn, who the paper says uh, would naturally be among the favourites to succeed Tony Houlihan as CMO, but who may also be on the cusp of departing to a role in the private sector. So perhaps the ready-made substitute for the role uh, may not actually be interested in the role. Uh, And speaking of how the role was all going to be paid for, uh, and this idea that he was going to remain on the Department of Health's payroll, may not have been all that correct because the Sunday Times tells us this morning in its lead story that uh, Tony Houlihan's role was never going to be on the taxpayer. The Department of Health says was never planning to pay Tony Houlihan's salary on a succumbent TCD. It would instead have come from public research funding designed to combat future pandemics. Uh, the idea that Houlihan was still going to be paid his full salary by the Exchequer was, quote, an error poorly communicated from within the Department of Health and within Trinity College, according to one senior figure. A number of senior civil servants feel that they have been hung out to dry in the growing role over the secondment, the senior figure said, claiming that both the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health were supportive of the move in advance of its announcement. Micheál Martin, the paper says, is said to have been told by Martin Fraser, the Secretary-General in his department, about the secondment before the official announcement on March 25th. A spokesman for Martin yesterday did not comment on the claim that the Taoiseach was briefed by Fraser. Uh, I can tell you certainly this morning that I've been in contact with the Taoiseach spokesman. He says that is not the case, that Micheál Martin was not briefed around the payment arrangements for all of this before news of Tony Houlihan's new job was announced on March 25th. Stephen Donnelly, it says, could not be reached, but a spokesperson said on Wednesday that the minister was made aware on Tuesday that this was his incumbent and he was advised by Dr Houlihan's uh, advised of Dr Houlihan's departure some weeks ago but not the finer HR details Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times by the way just in some non-Houlihan news Passengers had to queue up outside the terminal for the first time at Dublin Airport yesterday as it continued to struggle with security staff shortages. Travellers posted pictures on social media of large queues outside the terminal from about 4am. The DAA, the airport's agency, has told the paper that airport police and Gardaí had to stagger the flow of passengers into the terminals after people followed the advice to show up early for their own flights. It claims that queues for check-in, bag drop and security then moved well and passengers were queuing for an average of one hour before 6am. But the DAA also says, and this is maybe the worrying bit, that it will be June before it restores full staff capacity and that it will continue to refine and adapt security screening operations in the meantime. It says that somewhere between 250 and 300 people have been called for an interview to fill up those staffing roles this week. Uh, the Sunday Times also tells us today very briefly that at least 140 trainee Gardaí have been unable to progress in their careers since 2019 after failing basic fitness tests, mostly involving the bleep test. And Garda Shiakana is now facing at least a dozen high court challenges from trainees who are challenging decisions to either prolong or to end their probationary periods. Half of those involve uh, people who failed the bleep test. And this isn't just trainees, by the way, because one person involved um, told the Irish Sun two years ago that they'd been forced to leave the force after 10 years due to failing the bleep test. 
And somebody else who joined the force in 2016 and who was let go in 2020 has told the High Court that this person is a sporting woman who plays camogie for her local GAA team, does long distance charity cycles and has at times attained a level of fitness that many people would be envious of, but apparently was made to leave on Garda Shia because they couldn't pass uh, the short term stamina of a bleep test. And finally for now, back on the Houlihan story, the Mail on Sunday leads with comments from a government minister, no less, uh, the junior minister Niall Collins says that the country's highest paid civil servant has displayed breathtaking arrogance and contempt over the whole thing. This, of course, is the famous uh, chief civil servant at the Department of Health, Robert Watt, who has come in for sustained criticism from cabinet ministers and government and opposition TDs yesterday after it emerged that he kept his boss, Stephen Donnelly, in the dark about the ill-fated succumbent. Mr Collins told the Mail on Sunday the fact that he didn't keep his senior minister informed of such a politically sensitive move displays breathtaking arrogance and contempt. And the Mail on Sunday basically also quotes a cabinet source who, who chimes with what the Sunday Independent today is reporting. Uh, the idea that the Taoiseach's decision to pause Houlihan's appointment is perceived as being the key fa- factor in influencing Houlihan's uh, decision to resign. The cabinet source says that signalled the end. Michal rarely calls out issues like this. So when he moved, well, Tony is smart. He knew it could only end in one story. Uh, so that is your guide of what's making the front pages. I suspect this will be a, a bit of a Tony Houlihan show for a little while. Uh, we're joined in studio by Sheena Cahill, who's a communications manager with Goshka, the President's Award, and also by Philip Ryan, who's group political editor at the Irish and Sunday Independence. Um, Philip, I suppose the writing sort of really was on the wall when Micheál Martin announced what he was doing, because I suppose it was lose-lose, that if it was to be paused while the whole thing was reviewed, either it would be paused and then continue, and everyone would go, oh, that's it, cushy number for Tony, or it would not go ahead, in which case Tony Houlihan's time in public service would end under a cloud anyway. So it was always going to end this way. Well, I, I don't think it was unreasonable for the Taoiseach to seek more information about the appointment, given that it was uh, that it, it became controversial, and given that there was... Uh, it's, it's like a severe lack of transparency when the mm. when the announcement was made, it was put out there, and it was said like, "Look, this is this is great." And and as the tarnished Leo Bradker said himself, the understanding was that uh, Tony Holohan had had spotted an opportunity. Uh, Trinity had offered or had advertised a gig, and yeah. he went for it and got it. And that's what everyone thought, and was like, "Good for good for Doctor Holohan." Yeah. That seems reasonable and it's mm. great. Isn't it great that he's still... Yeah. Teaching uh, the CMOs of the future. Great stuff. Teaching yeah. CMOs of the future and still keeping an eye on the pandemic and preparing us for future pandemics. Everyone was supportive of that. But as the information drip-feeded out over the week, and it, it's it's even less clear now, actually, with all the, the various different lines that are in the Sunday papers about who was going to pay for it, uh, was it going to be Trinity, was it going to be uh, the Department of Health, was he going to keep... His 187,000 um, euro salary, yeah. which is a good 30 euros less than what most professors get get paid in the civil service, or, or in, yeah. in Trinity. There's more, yeah. Or, or more, rather, yeah. yeah. So, like, look, there, there's, there's, a, there's still all these questions out here, but like you say, it is a lose-lose for everybody because... Mm. Uh, Tony Holohan seems to have uh, got upset by the, the controversy and now he's mm. he's washed his hands of the civil uh, service. And it sort of seems that you can also argue that Tony Houlihan has been hard done by by the way in which this was politically handled or the fact that it wasn't all communicated from the get-go. And yet you can also argue that maybe Tony has hoisted his own petard here because if he expressed an interest in leaving and apparently he was in some discussions with Trinity and UCD about what sort of roles that could be magicked up for him to slot into, that he was in some ways an architect of all of this himself as well. Well, he seems to have been very centrally involved and, and uh, uh, celebrity civil servant Robert Watt seems to have been uh, in the mix <laughs> yeah. as well. So it is... Sure, he'd be it, delighted with that characterization. It, so he, he's, it, it, it seems that, it, look, this, is, this was organised by them. But I think the overarching point here with this is, now, 
the, the politicians will always tell you, like, we're not involved in the personnel matters and the human resource matters within the civil service. And maybe we lead, need it that way because mm. who wants your, you know, your minister promoting and demoting and, yeah. and choosing who gets to go where? You don't want that, possibly. And But at the same time, the chief medical officer, as we've known over the last two years, is a hugely crucial um, position within our, our whole yeah. uh, state setup. And the, the idea that the outgoing guy could just pop off Minister doesn't really know. Does the Taoiseach know? He doesn't really seem to have known. Yeah, it, it, like it's, it's it's a central position within our entire setup yeah. as a state that, so that, for, that they wouldn't them, be involved like, in him yeah, exiting. You don't want them designing it, but you do want them at least to be in the loop as to how it's all happening yeah, and not like just being told by civil yeah, servants who, after the fact. Who's coming in? Who is someone? Are, have they advertised for the new one? Yeah, we're going to need a CMO. Yeah. You would think, like, so. is that one of those TLAC jobs that have to be publicly advertised, or does yeah, it get filled internally, like Martin Fraser's uh, replacement yeah. was filled internally? Um, Sheena Cahill, good morning to you. Uh, good just morning. first of all, your your reflections on how what really ought to have been something of a good news story has completely unravelled into a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, na 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 boys club. Like that's literally that all. Oh, like a great. That's the clip. That's why. Eleven fifteen. You 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 peaked. Um, no, that's it. Um, yeah. Like Hugh O'Connell, absolutely living his best life. Um, with you know another fine mess quote in the um in page six of the Independent. Um, quote around it being a sorry saga. Um, editorial then in the Sunday Times comparing it to Zapone. Um, which I think was um I think it's actually a useful um. Um, you know, connection. Mm. Um, Is it a fair comparison? I do. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, the way the editorial and the Sunday Times pitches it uh, is with the sentence, it was all so unnecessary, which I totally agree with. Uh, it all does seem to have been, and even just in the chat you had just mm. there, it all seems to have been a bit unnecessary. But for three main points, um, the comparison with Sapone was that there, number one, there was no public competition for Miss Sapone's job. Number two, the Taoiseach was not briefed uh, basically fully in advance. And number three, the usual appointment procedure was not followed. Um, well, this obviously was suppo- supposedly a secondment mm. and apparently, according to the Sunday Times, not on the pay of the public sector um, yeah. at all. Which, which uh, I should say, out. by the way, and I, and I don't mean to interrupt you mid-flow, yeah, but ahead. I should just say that I've asked sources within the Department of Antishuk and the Department of Health today, do they know where that fund, that money is funded from? Yeah. And none of them can give me an answer. So they're all saying that, yes, the job would have been funded by some kind of a pandemic research sort of a thing but they can't tell us which department is actually coming for or is it actually public money to begin with. So the Sunday Times says, Ash, that's not public money. But actually, no yeah, so one knows, is, is it private philanthropy or, or where is it coming from or, or how would it have been funded anyway? Yeah, so Philip just made that point. It's like there's confusion over where the money was coming from in the first place, which is like, why? This is a big, this is a big role. Um, it's for the big guy. And and why were we not following the money? Um, and I think journalists were right to ask questions about it. I think absolutely, you'd be absolutely stung if you're Tony Houlihan, like, and, and you can tell how stung he is in the message that came out. Like, in his statement, he's pretty annoyed and he's pretty frustrated and he's pretty bitter because he's like, this was a great thing for Ireland and now you're yeah. shoving me over to the private sector. How dare you people? Um, but the, um, Justine McCarthy... Probably make a lot more money. Yeah, um, and that's... And, <laughs> well, he probably will end up making a lot more money now, won't he? Because he does, he does say lose, that lose. he's now looking forward to... What was in the statement yesterday? He's now looking forward to basically using his, his uh, expertise or to basically do some work outside mm. of the public sector. Mm. So That's basically, right, a bit I'm, of an I'm going flag private there, now. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, Justine McCarthy in the Sunday Times has like a blistering article as well. The first sentence of it is, how many senior civil servants does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is zero. They operate on the principle that actually certain matters concerning themselves are best kept in the dark. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like oh, 
go on. Um, so there's all of this. Like, I mean, I think, you know, we can we can be like jovial about it in some ways. Uh, but the reality is that not just it, it's harking of that the Zappone appointment, it's harking of the Seamus Wolf appointment, uh, where Justine McCarthy makes the point that, you know, he was appointed to the land's highest court without ever having served as a judge mm. in her article. So I suppose there's that concern flowing through, all, splashes across all the papers about this idea, perhaps of a democratic deficit, of a lack of transparency. And it's max of, as I started off with, a bit of a boys club about like looking after your lads. And I think Tony Houlihan has been caught in the fire of that. The, the, the difference I'd see with this one and um, the Zappone appointment or the, the almost appointment yeah. is that it was done behind the backs of the politicians almost. That it was, that, that the politicians so, don't seem to be centrally involved yeah. in this. So whereas, whereas the Zappone one was actually engineered by politicians and exactly, this one was engineered yeah. without them knowing. And you, you can argue the point about which is which is better off or which is more transparent, but we do elect the politicians mm. and we, we do decide that these guys are supposed to run the country. But this one seems to have been done to the side like this is, these are the lads like and, you said the and boys from a were... communication perspective it's really embarrassing like I think Donnelly and Michal Martin had come out like saying this is great like on Twitter and stuff last week and it was kind of delighted for Tony getting this new position and then they all had to like jump back mm. on that and then of course Leo so Varadkar d- delighted that he's doing like, delighted that he's doing the job but maybe not so thrilled that we're paying for yeah, him to do but the like, job it, that's when they congratulated him by the sounds of it they didn't know that the money was coming from public coffers that's by the that's yeah. what it looks like based on the timeline and then it's like journalists started asking questions they realised the money was actually a secondment potentially as you say it's unclear whether that was a secondment in terms of the the Department of Health or not but I think one of the things that will transpire over the coming months or years maybe as well is that we're going to have to have some sort of review of the pandemic we're talking about this kind of inquiry into it that's probably the wrong word but some sort of review yeah and if the guy who was centrally involved is off in the private sector yeah. doing something else, will well, he be sure. obliged ha- to come ha- in? Hadn't the Taoiseach, we, we've discussed in this lot yeah. on, on a Sunday before, this idea that the Taoiseach said he didn't envisage that it would be the sort of thing where you'd be calling in the CMO. Yeah. Anyway, so like, what was the sort think, of point of it? Really, I think then? the Taunish kind of said the opposite thing, though, didn't he, as well? As, yeah. as oh, that's is. unusual, isn't it? That's very unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, if, if, that the, if... The right wing didn't know what the centre right wing would do. But if the former chief medical officer at that time is working for whoever he's working for and it's in the private sector it's it's probably there'll be, there'll be there's, yeah. there's no laws to bring him in so and if he doesn't well, want to come he won't well, have this to is the, the other argument that it, it wasn't I don't think this was communicated at the time but then so it, it came out subsequently that because he was on succumbent that part of the reason why they could justify that was not just because he was teaching the CMOs of the future and obviously mm. he's got great expertise now to be tapped into about what worked and what didn't work and how you can do things differently in future but that also he was going to be on some sort of an open-ended brief where he'd be offering input to the department on what could have been done differently and to sort of to tap all these other international sources to come up with ideas for how you can mm. better manage things in future. And again, right, no, no better man that, no, like, who's been networked, who's been in the job for 14 years, who was doing the job of the CMO for 12 years before before COVID was even a twinkle in a bat's eyelid. Um, and yet, but like, he was mm. also quite an authoritarian CMO when it came to management of a pandemic. Um, you know, everyone remembers October 2020, he comes back and suddenly out of nowhere, he's Dr. Doom saying, mm. not down the country again. Would he actually be the best person to lead some kind of learning thing when so much of the things that maybe could have been done differently could have been done differently by him? Well, you would hope with research that it is based on facts and figures. So if you're you're delving into these things and the decisions you're making and the findings that you find that, that are based on 
presumably to the, uh, a lot of extent quantitative research but there will obviously there's the qualitative side as well which he he would have his own views and <laughs> if he's doing research on his own and uh, handling of the pandemic yeah. maybe it would come out uh, with a little better higher results than if someone else was um look over our overall it, it, look the, a review of the pandemic and the decisions we've taken will have to be mm. come but we are very low on the number of people who died um due to covid compared to other places in the world mm. And as so far there's as stuff to be learned there. As yeah. far as the metric yeah. goes, that's a pretty good one. I, I think it's interesting that um, I didn't really see much apart from in Justine McCarthy's article in The Times really questioning Trinity's role in this. Um, mm. I think that's interesting. She makes the point, you know, on the, you know, on the scale of Trinity's approximate 400 million annual income, the cost of Holohan's salary would be about as draining on the institution's finances as a leaf falling in the black forest. Now, um, obviously, Justine has her opinions there as to how much money is coming into um, Trinity and what they have uh, to give. But I think that's an interesting question. I'm like, you know, Trinity obviously were. And I'm delighted to announce this kind of preeminent scholar uh, to be taking over a leadership program inside, mm. and uh, maybe they should have put up the money for it. Well, sorry, Phil. Go ahead. Yeah, well, this is the thing, isn't it? It it very much points towards this was an idea from the Department of Health because if Trinity had come up with the idea, they'd hardly turn around and go like, and yeah, on top and, of it and all, you're going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, like they would hardly would have done not? that. <laughs> well, possibly <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> a, a few a few texts and tweets. But if they the really videos. want them there, like they they, uh, they should. Colin has used our hashtag on the record NT he says it's amazing how our memories have gotten so short Tony Houlihan's record is one littered with scandals mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. Covid hit but it seems that you're only as good or as bad as your last gig um, Oshina Cork says Micheál Martin is throwing Houlihan under the bus to save Donnelly um, I'll get you to, to respond to that in a moment um, we assume the Director General of the Department of Health will be stepping down says Rocky um, on the Trinity appointment of Tony Houlihan please all stop giving out about the man says Margaret and Swords his advice and guidance saved many lives during the pandemic and he has opted out end of story um, someone else says can his salary not be uh, paid from half of Robert Watts inflated salary uh, and now from Dublin has and this is an interesting point Philip um, has Ireland lost out from the Dr Houlihan debacle just like the media furore over Phil Hogan during the pandemic don't get me started on media furore but in in the principle can we not hold on to experienced public servants rather than forcing them into the private sector says now from Dublin you know I always see these things and, and people start blaming the media and I don't think we're as powerful as people think we make us out to be. Like the, the politicians still make. Aren't you the influencer shaper, though, Philip? No, I in the media and in the Absolutely not. No, we just we just report on what's happening and give yeah. our give our views. But like the, the politicians make the decisions. Nobody and, uh, here in any of the articles, nor in this conversation today, have we said that um, Tony Hulan wouldn't be like brilliant in that space or mm. have loads to talk about or like actually mm. loads to give back. Um and. And Margaret, you're dead right. He did loads of great stuff, and some of the, some of the things he brought in was uh, did save people's lives. But that doesn't mean that when you get appointed on public money, potentially, mm. to something that could be perceived as a cushy academic role, and even if it's not, that 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 process must be transparent. And it wasn't. And it wasn't clear. Stephen Donnelly wasn't clear. Apparently the Michal, Ma- Michal Martin wasn't clear. So as much as you may love or hate the man, you should absolutely be clear on the transparency of the process, appointing him to a role outside the public sector, which may have been covered in mm. payment by the taxpayer. Uh, Mike likes your description, Philip, of uh, Robert Watt as a celebrity civil servant. They say it does seem apt. Uh, Ronan says, uh, and this is an interesting point, but we'll go to a break after this. Uh, he says, at least the next CMO will know what they're in for now. Really attractive setup for the recruitment process, guys. Well done. They have, they have sort of poisoned the pool really now that if, if Ronan Glynn doesn't want the job 
And it's pretty evident now that Tony is leaving under far from ideal circumstances. It does sort of beg a question as to how they're actually going to make this role attractive, given that all it seems to do is attract negative public and media attention. I think that comes with the role anyway. I think 180,000 is still a significant amount of money to offer somebody in this space. Mm. Um, you do want the best people. And I think, you know, obviously the question that came in about keeping really good civil servants who have huge amount of experience um, and expertise in an area, you want to keep them in the public service to make the to be there to make the right decisions, to be in the rooms uh, making those decisions. But at the same time, I don't think throwing money um, above 180,000 yeah. is what's going to solve the recruitment process there. And I think you absolutely have to accept mm. if you're a CMO that you are accountable to the public and to the government on your decisions. Somebody in government circles yesterday put it to me after that statement from Trinity College saying that it was an awful shame now that they couldn't tap into his expertise and we're all sort of wondering well, pay for if, it, Trinity. If, if, if you think he was that good why don't you pay for it? And somebody said it's not like Simon Harris wouldn't find the money to pay for another job for Tony Houlihan after the relationship that they had when they were working together. Um, Senator Tom Clonan says and we'll leave it at this he says to be a professor you have to have a PhD you must have outstanding scholarly output of publications and research. Tony Hulham was a fine civil servant, but there are men and women in public health with those prerequisites, so you should just advertise an interview for the job. And congratulations, Tom, as well, on Indeed. the new role. Indeed. Trinity, Trinity uh, Alamater as well. It's, well, there is. It's, it's all Trinity. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, by the way, on, on uh, appointments for people in the, the political sort of circle, the Private Hospitals Association has this morning announced the appointment of Jim Daly as its new CEO. Jim Daly, um, people may remember, was previously a Minister for State at the Department of Health. Uh, so good luck to him in that new job and isn't it interesting how people always find a way to land on their feet. Um, somebody is not too pleased with my slightly acerbic take on Jim Daly's appointment to the Private Hospitals Association. They say, God forbid you should ever be successful after a career in public service, political or otherwise. It seems some people will only be satisfied if another is sweeping the floors in a completely unconnected sector. Uh, someone else says, PhD needed my ass. Experience trumps academic learnings every time, says Lara in Dublin, about the idea of needing a PhD to be a professor. Uh, somebody else says, yet again, I am embarrassed about how this government and civil servants run our country. Communication and transparency are surely a prerequisite in 2022. They say they feel bad for Tony Houlihan. Someone else says, Tony Houlihan was an unmitigated disaster and got everything wrong. Um, someone else says about the emergency housing for refugees. In fact, I'll leave that for a couple of minutes because we're going to be talking about that in a second. Uh, someone else, though, says on the question of the media influence, who put it into the public domain that the public money was being paid to fund Tony Houlihan's role? Was it the media? Bad journalism? In fact, no, it wasn't. It was um, the press offices of the Department of Health and Trinity College who told uh, Philip's colleague, Alicia Regan, on Tuesday morning that that's how it was all being paid for. So if, if it's if it's lies we're told, it's lies we're telling, but it's not, not out of the air that we plucked it. Um, let us talk about what is going on in Ukraine because obviously we are now 45 days into an awful conflict which has claimed uh, countless numbers of lines. We're joining the line by Toby Fricker, who's a UNICEF spokesman uh, reporting from Lviv. Um, Tony, you've been, uh, Toby, you've been all over the country. You've been in Zaporizhia. You've been in Dnipro. Um, what have you seen across the country six weeks into this war? Yeah, hi, and, and thanks so much for having me and UNICEF on. Um, yeah, so I've, I've traveled around a little bit, and uh, I think what, what we're facing is a massive child protection uh, crisis. Uh, I was in uh, Zaporizhia in the southeastern town uh, just a few days back, and uh, we were seeing and witnessing and meeting people who are just fleeing areas of very heavy fighting. Uh, they managed to get out. They literally jumped in their cars and, and made a run for it when the fighting sort of came to their doorstep. Um, and, and that was children who have, who have been through some real horrors, you know, really suffered through, uh, through the, the heaviest fighting that, that you can see. So what we're trying to do is, is provide that immediate relief uh, to those children, trying to get relief supplies into areas where it's uh, the heaviest fighting. Um, and also to to support the sort of emotional uh, needs. Uh, there's massive trauma 
uh, from what children have, have lived through. And, and we're trying to do whatever we can to provide that psychosocial support. So, for example, in the north, in Kharkiv, uh, we've managed to get some teams into the uh, metro stations there to provide some just some games, just some light relief for children who are, who are down there sheltering from, from the horrors above. Um, it's amazing you can do anything just to sort of help preserve that little bit of childhood innocence for them. Um, have you had any difficulties in actually getting some of your humanitarian supplies into the country? Because we seem to be reading every day about talks of humanitarian corridors to the likes of Mariupol, uh, none of which ever seem to, to come to pass. So have you had any difficulty getting your kit into the country? Yeah, so uh, humanitarian access is extremely challenging, uh, particularly to Mariupol and, and some other areas. Um, and that continues to be a massive challenge. And there's, there's two things to look at. First of all, we need to get civilians out. They need safe passage out of those areas, particularly children. Um, and secondly, we need to get supplies in. And that has been extremely challenging in some areas. However, we are able to move supplies around into some of the very heavily affected areas like Sumi and Chernihiv. Um, and even in uh, Zaporizhia, for example, I saw the, the, the impact of some of those supplies. So at the, the hospital that was treating, unfortunately, a number of children in intensive care, uh, we managed to provide uh, medical equipment, surgical items, and, and the doctors were extremely grateful for that because it, it provided some, so, some relief sort of from the strain of all the, the services that they're having to put into place to treat all these children who have been injured uh, as they try to come out or, or in areas of fighting. Um, I realise that this is possibly a very surreal and might sound to some people like a very blunt or ill-informed question, but I wonder to what extent is there any sort of normal life continuing? So you've been in Zaporizhia, as you say, you've been in Dnipro, you've been in, in Lviv now. Are people still going out and about? Are they going to shops to get whatever they can or whenever it's safe? Or are they all just inside kind of hunkering down, waiting for, for all of this to end, hopefully with a happy conclusion? Like what, What's going on on the ground there? Yeah, so, so Lviv in the, in the west of Ukraine is a relatively safer area, though having said that there are regular air raid sirens, children having to go back down into basements um, and that sort of trauma coming back. But a lot of people in Lviv have come from the east, come from areas where there's been heavier fighting. Um, and they are, people are going out, there's, there's that normal life, uh, some form of normalcy. Uh, but deep down, the, the conflict's always there. And, uh, and every so often when the sirens go, it's, it's going back into shelters. It's the reminder that the, the conflict is ever present. Um, and, and that's across the country. Even in uh, Ushgrod, where I was uh, yesterday and the day before, at the train station, you know, the trains uh, early in the morning, a train came in from Kramatorsk, and that was just before the horrific attack that happened. Um, so that, 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 the conflict never goes. Uh, unfortunately for children, it's very hard for them to, to escape that. But what we do need to do is provide some form of normal childhood back as soon as we can. And that can be done through, you know, through the spillno centers, which we set up, which is basically an integrated service area where children go and play, they can get some emotional support and, and importantly, mothers and women and, and extended family who are with those children can get advice and guidance on where to go. So, for example, children coming with existing underlying medical conditions, mothers don't know where to take them. They're in a, in a new city, in a strange city they don't know. Uh, so centres like that can provide that information to, to refer them to the right services. Um, has there been enough of a global, and by global I mean governmental, um, humanitarian response to all of this? I mean, there's plenty of stories of people who have been making individual donations to the likes of your own organisation, UNICEF, or to their local branch of the Red Cross trying to do what they can. But has the world uh, done enough to address the humanitarian crisis as well as the, the diplomatic one? Well, I mean, I think the humanitarian crisis can end by the war ending. I mean, that's the ultimate. That's what we need. But while the conflict continues, um, you know, UNICEF is extremely grateful to the sort we've received. And that's from governments. That's from individuals uh, in Ireland, across the world. 
um, and also from the private sector, the support has been immense. Um, and that's critical because the conflict goes on and the, the needs are rising by the day, unfortunately. Um, and that means UNICEF and other partners, our local organizations, need to continue scaling up our operations to meet as many children as we can and to provide the support that is needed. And that, and that will unfortunately go on as long as the conflict rages. So in effect, then, for as long as the conflict goes on, then the, the size of your task, Herculean as it already is, just gets bigger and bigger. The task does get better, big, uh, bigger. I think the, um, the hope is that children are resilient, that if we provide the right support, then they can recover for this. But the longer the conflict goes on, then the more trauma children experience and the more impact on their development, both immediately but also in the longer run. Uh, and that's on their physical and mental well-being and even you know, affecting education and even in the longer run income generation. Toby Fricker, UNICEF spokesman reporting from Lviv. Thank you for bringing us up to speed and do stay safe over there and well done with all the work that you're doing. Uh, Toby Fricker there from UNICEF. I'm still joined in the studio by Philip Ryan of Independent Newspapers and by Sheena Cahill from Goshka, the President's Award. Um, Philip, there's a lot written today, um, obviously, about what's going on in the war in Ukraine, but particularly um, extensive coverage in the Business Post about the... The issues we're going to have in the long term trying to find housing for the tens of thousands of people who are coming to the country, we all know that there was already a chronic housing shortage anyway, but we're getting to a point now where if you try to accommodate tens of thousands more than we're already there, that you're going to run into serious capacity problems very quickly. Yeah, where do we put all these people? And there seems to be there's a bit of backlash as well from the construction industry over this idea of building modular housing or prefabs to, to house these people. And while I'd say a lot of these people coming here would be appreciative of anything to begin with, there, there's only so long you're, you're going to be willing to live in, in some sort of cramped accommodation. You, you want to get back uh, back to your life, back to, to living as normal. The, the, the Probably the most harrowing piece I read is, is from Maeve Sheehan in the Sunday Independent when talking about these 89 children who came here unaccompanied um, from the Ukraine. And like to think of the position that a parent would be in where you have to put your kid on a plane or, or, or however mm. and just send them to another country. It's, it's just it's just so stark yeah. to, 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 to think that way. Um, Sheena, anything that's jumped out from you from today's coverage? Yeah, it was, it was just har- it's harrowing listening to, you know, the UNICEF there. It's harrowing to even think about it, like this, the state and the mindset of people coming here and the fact that we, we haven't really seen this before. Our services... Um, aren't really ready for this and we, we have to get ready. I mean, we've no choice but to do that. Mm. Um, business In the Business Post, Killian Woods kind of has a piece um, looking at what Philip mentioned there about the concern that the Construction Federation uh, appears to have about the kind of stain on their reputation um, and developers feeling like there might be a stain on their reputation if they were to commit to building prefabs because mm. obviously as somewhat a temporary measure you know after a number of years they might not be fit for purpose and they yeah. feel like they'd be blamed well to be so quite basically on- any housing that they're building they'd say would have to be temporary in nature which means that the standard isn't going to be what they'd like to be associated with yeah but with. it's still better than a tent in a hole you know um, and I, I like I, I look at I'm not a housing expert I think and but I'm just hearing from even around the country from youth services and um, from community groups um, you know of the kind of 70 75 people coming in in like in in buses constantly and you're trying to house them obviously in in hotels um county councils are extremely stretched on this um so I think that I think we need to do what we have to do here and if that includes building prefabs as a as a measure mm. uh, in order to look after these people and to uh, give them initial supports and services I think that needs to be done um you know Killian Woods's piece in the business post 
mentions that, you know, there are 90,000 vacant homes or, or dwellings, should I say, nationwide that were identified in a recent residential buildings report by GeoDirectory. Um, but that also that around 2,500 vacant local authority houses are, are going to be on that list mm. for getting fixed up. Um, and look, at it, it, all of this means that we have to get our act together um, and it's not about, and I, I absolutely reject any discussion around the us versus them thing that you can already see um, happening in, in certain spaces. I think we, we should have been doing better anyway, so now we have to step up. Uh, well, then I, I guess you probably don't have much support for the, the point put, put by um, Ushin to 53106 who says, funding for private homes to house Ukrainians, rightly so, but where is the help for citizens who've been slaughtered with obscene rents? More populism, he says, by Michal Martin. I suppose you could say that I'm not the, going to respond to someone to who says slaughtered by payment. obscene rents. I'm not going to respond to that. Slaughtered by rents. You, that's absolutely... It's, 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 it's sorry, an unfortunate choice of words actually by yeah, that text yeah, given yeah. what's yeah. going on in Ukraine. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. but like, you know, in The Independent on page 13, Ali Bracken has a story about the fact that there were 39 asylum-seeking children who have gone missing in the last five years. Now, this is not Ukraine-related, but mm. this is how we have been mishandling in some ways. Um, and uh, the, the refugee crisis, already we have been experiencing in terms of migrants and those seeking international protection in Ireland. We absolutely have to do better here. Mm. And if the Ukrainian crisis is doing anything, it's exposing more and more the um, the inequalities in the system around direct provision as an example that already exist here. So I think there's a lot more to do. It, and of course, of course, I mean, we saw it in yeah. the Ireland Think survey last week from The Independent. People are, and and including all of us, are being impacted in different ways by the cost of living, by the crisis, by by Ukraine um, and all of that. And I think that mm. does need to be taken into account, but you cannot compare well, that to children running from crisis. I think that survey also showed, though, that the, the initial impact and the initial goodwill shown by uh, the Irish public, mm. um, it's kind of reduced a little bit over time, you know, like the the initial impact of you know the bad guy Putin invading Ukraine, like that, like that, there's not, like people by their nature want to look after themselves, and it might sound somewhat selfish, and and maybe uh, that texture was put it very badly, but after a certain amount of time, like people, the goodwill will. But well, this, is, well, this is a question of the structure already there yeah, and the yeah. lack well, of housing already I there. Is this maybe one of the reasons why the government now thinks that about half of the pledged accommodation that came through that Red Cross register isn't going to materialise? Because maybe when people realise that it, this go. isn't going to be for a few weeks, that it may be for a few months or, or that it's indefinite and, there was reports, and that they may not get any support to try and house that person. And there was reports during the week where people have had people in their accommodation. I think it was in the Irish Times. And they 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 realised that it it's, it wasn't something that was very workable, and again, on a very mm. selfish way of looking at things, like there's going to be an added cost to your life. You're yeah. going to, like you're not going to ask the the people coming in to pay, help pay your electricity bill and your gas bill. Like that that's not going to be the thing. And I think this kind of leads us on to the the Taoiseach's comments there, mm. where where he's discussing, he's telling Hugh O'Connell in the Sunday Independent again. Um, that the government might look at actually giving some money over to to encourage people to to, to house Ukrainians as they come here. In the, in the UK, the, the, the equivalent in euros is they're giving a four hundred and twenty euros a week, which is substantial. Yeah. Enough, so but this yeah. needs to be planned. It needs to be structured, okay. and it needs to think long term. A uh, a cynic texts in to say that builders worry that prefabs will be the reason they have a bad rep. Ha 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 ha! A murderer worried that shoplifting will ruin their rep. Uh, says that person. Um, Texters are on fire today. No, they are. And so someone else actually. <laughs> Demo makes a very good point that it wants to know whether the government is going to call NAMA to this emergency meeting tomorrow, see what they can do to help Ukrainian refugees, because as he says, no builder in his right mind would go into business with the Irish government. Um, Chena Cal and Philip Ryan are still with me in. Studio. 
studio. Um, Philip, the um the business post front page story about a Devney Gardens. I said I hoped we get a chance to, to come to it. Um, mm. the idea that. First of all, I think we discussed in this slot a few weeks ago, the idea that a builder being able to kind of cajole or bully the government and saying, you know, you better buy all these houses or we're going to go to some sort of mm. institutional investor. And I didn't realise at the time that there was a condition in planning permission saying that they couldn't all go to an mm. investor. But the idea now that they could, like Odebney Gardens is one of those landmark pro- uh, things that I, I can't remember how many sod turnings there's been or how many photo ops there's been. And if it turns out that a an aspiring, you know, first time buyer couple looking for a three bed semi-D can't get any of them. I only live around the corner from it. I walk by it all the time. Um, it's it, it's it's got it's going up. It's getting there. It's been a while building it, but the, the mm. first phase of it seems to be done. Um, and I was understand like a large proportion of it will be social housing as as far as I understood. Like the, uh, the yeah. but it, it's a mixed so development 20, of course 20%, as well. Yeah, so twenty percent are going to be social housing. Uh, mm. Dublin City Council is going to buy those, uh, and then thirty percent mm. will be sold as affordable purchase housing but the idea was maybe that the other 524 um, were going to go on the market Mm. and and you'd buy them in a free market like anyone else yeah look it's a difficult one because obviously in this country because we're free open democracy and uh, governed by a constitution that people have property rights you know if you build them you own them you Mm. you can do what you want with them and um, this is the situation that's developed here like look no one wants these institutional developers or um, investors coming in and taking over the place and charging extraordinary rents or, or even just renting them back to the to the the councils at 25 year yeah. leases but, but at the it, same it, time what do what, what do we actually want as far as our housing policy mm. do we want a situation where the government can tell um businesses what they can and cannot do with their with their properties we all they already have a, a situation where you know they're, they're required to do various things such as the 20% social housing and, and all that aspect. So it, it's yeah. it, it's 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 an aspect of it's a debate to be had about like like what do, what should yeah. people be allowed but to do it, with the so, property? But there's two, there's two aspects that do it though. There's this firstly that Barcher claimed the viability of the project would be affected by any kind of a ban on the mass sale of the other units to an institutional investor, which you know if if you live around the corner and you say that it looks like from the outside that it's nearly done. Mm. I, I well, guess one that, part that, of it is. But it, it can't be all that true if they, they reckon that it was only viable and this was part of the planning permission until now. Um, but mm. B, it's only a few months since the government decided to try and deter institutional investors by increasing stamp duty, but they didn't do it for apartments in Dublin. No, because... And here we are. Because, because as well, though, you need apartments in Dublin. We need housing, <laughs> all sorts of housing. And and I know that, that that's the government line in, in some regard, but it's true, too. You need all sorts of housing. You need places for people to live. We need places yeah. for Ukrainians to live. We're talking about putting them in tents and, and prefabs because yeah. we can't house the yeah. rest of us. And you just need anyone who's building a house in but, Dublin but should be off with you, build a thing. there'll be places that people can, can contend to buy? How just is this them. happening, though? I just don't get it. Like we we talk like every week about how the government are trying to like move against cuckoo funds and have these like stop these massive investors coming in and like taking all the property. Like I just don't understand it. Like I uh it's but who's gonna to build them to otherwise, it. you know? But your Barcher knew well. Um, in my Barcher's opinion, not a charity at the same time. But, it's no, a, like a, a it, it is what it is. It also like, looks at it's also it's looking at the property market and it knows it will sell those houses. To suggest, I think it's absolutely it's flummoxing me. Flummoxing. But I mean, um, business is business. You know? Business is business. <laughs> yeah, no, Philip. They they know that those houses will sell. So to put the, the government over a barrel and suggest that unless you buy them, we're not going to build them when they know mm. that people will buy them. Like, look at the market. Look at what's going. 
even in Stony Batter houses going at five hundred, six hundred thousand. There mm. is people. Um, there are people wanting to buy houses and apartments in Dublin. The idea that these five hundred and twenty-four mm. didn't have buyers for them. Unless but, the state bought them, it's just it's, it's, ludicrous. Would it not to usually me. be the case that when if you were buying five hundred twenty-four apartments, that you'd sort of get like a bulk discount? Yeah. So like, surely, like, would they not have made more money by selling off the five hundred twenty-four to individual aspiring buyers or maybe a couple of smaller investors rather than sure, them all off in one big bulk? Sure, but it's messy having to deal with each. Oh, it's messy making money. No, but, but well, no. The, the process of doing that is, you know, it, it's it's a lot easier to sell things off in a bunch than yeah. than than having individual five hundred and twenty four deals with various different uh, buyers. It, of course, it's well, easier. Isn't it what most developers of most housing estates have done since time? Immemorial? No, well, like that twenty five year lease thing that the 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 local authorities look at. You talk to some developers, and that's like you know that's money for nothing. Like at the same time, um, the company has told Dara O'Brien that in order to commence construction on any social and affordable housing units on the site, they need a commitment from the state that it would acquire all 524 of the other homes and it said that it had engaged with the estate agents Hook and McDonald to help sell them uh, to a private buyer if the state didn't buy them first. Uh, the first planning ruling by Board Planola it banned such a sale but the revised decision has now reversed this. You should see the grimace on my face the whole way through you that should. sentence. It's, a, it's an impressive grimace I must say which is maybe a, a, why I'm going to use this polite excuse to try and draw a line under things because I'm a little bit intimidated I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> Sheena Cahill uh, who behind the grimace is also still quite an amiable <laughs> communications manager Thank for Agashka at the President's Award uh, and Philip Ryan who's political editor with independent newspapers. Thank you both very much. 